The grey mountains were dull and featureless, except the snowdrifts coating the peaks like icing sugar. The comet was now a flame above their heads, steadily growing in size as they pressed forward through the otherworldly terrain. The route to Blackwater Station passed through a small mountain settlement of ramshackle huts. Crooked little people with mouths fixed in gritty grins crept from every corner, soon surrounding the group in a mob as they walked, salivating and hungry. It's all about the community that has grown up around the show. We're small independent creators and we don't have big bags of gold just laying around to make all of our dreams come true. And I'm asking you to consider we have a pledge up this year at the $60 pledge and that's $5 a month. In all honesty, without your support, this show is not going to get paid. And I think that is what is the most terrifying and the most scary. I'm almost out of gas. I just sleep in my car last night. I, I don't suppose you have a couple of bucks. It's not we need really studio. I talk about, oh, what are we going to do? What big things we're going to do? Like starting a Discord channel where the Dice Tower getting their own van to go out and do things. For the tabletop community, or maybe some other big corporation tries to do So this is where y'all come in. We want y'all to become our patrons. The tribe pleaded for more, but it was never clear what the more was or what the people truly desired. Their eyes were wide and seemed empty and devoid of feeling. Craig gripped hold of his rucksack, fearful that its contents were what the people sought. Fred dug into his pockets and cast onto the ground a collection of wooden animal priority deal markers and Jake threw a handful of metal coin upgrades. The people flapped around the trinkets with great excitement and relish. Norm stepped up on top of an old goods wagon to speak to the masses. Hey everyone! You don't know what you want, but you do know that you want something. Look here! Every community on these mountains, they're all searching for some hope and joy in their lives. That's why it's come to us. The star from above, there must be a reason. So now get together here and close your eyes. Make a wish. Wish for everything you've ever dreamed and it'll come true. I wish I could swim like the mermaids. Like the mermaids can swim. Don't you get involved in them? Well, I wish a star would fall and vaporize us all, Norm. Ever since starting the channel in 2011, I've always wanted to be the money. How about singing? As of right now, as you can see, the room is literally just a room full of board games. Today, I'm going to show you my entire board game collection. Because photos can never really show there's 323 games in these shelves. Now I have got around 200 games here. And those board games need to be put into their homes. What I will say is that we don't have enough homes for all of these little guys, but that doesn't mean oh that they're God. not going to get homes. We just have to go and buy more homes for the games. You know, each week, the makers of camels send free cigarettes to hospitalized servicemen and veterans. This week's gift camels go to Veterans Hospital's What's Boise, Idaho. Anyway, give me one of those bags. I could, I could sell those bags and eat for a week with the money. Come on, you got to go. You're what make this a dream job. And I think there's another issue in terms of the mass-produced games from 18xx and cube rails too is that they've come in such a fast rate 
And I know all these games were available before, but being in the UK, it was a special purchase to get one or two of these. They became so readily available, and so many in such a short time, I feel like I can't keep up. There's no time for each. There's no time to... Yeah, it ties into another aspect of FOMO. We've got to buy these things. This is the last chance to get them. But they're coming in so thick and fast, there's no possibility of you participating with these things. It's almost a definition of unhealthy consumption, dressed up as a responsible decision. But I've done the same thing. That's not external critique. That I'm criticising myself there too. Now, I'm not going out buying absolutely every single one of these, but it does feel as if there's... I know this is a science fiction concept. This idea of the singularity. Go on, you're going to have to explain that. I mean, I get what the singularity is, but you're going to need to explain how it ties into this metaphor. It's like if there's fondue. Go on, connect the dots for me, Joe. Okay, so the idea of the singularity is where the rate of technology advances so much over a short amount of time, you get to a point where it almost becomes overwhelming for civilization. You're going to have... We've got a long walk back to the woods from here, haven't we? <laughs> I feel the acceleration in the mass-produced games has changed my train gaming life. So dramatically. My eyes are rolling so far in the back of my head that they're coming out of my arse. That now I feel all at lost. I don't know. I'm not untethered. I just can't manage this immense transformation in my life. And I don't even have time to adjust to this new world. You could argue this is an entirely personal problem. Oh, it I is. I could have just decided not to keep up with the Chris Spaths. But I think I prefer to blame Scott Peterson for the apocalypse as a harbinger of doom and destruction. My understanding is he's moved somewhere with a fault line so he can more easily access the bowels of hell from whence he came. But I think it has added to my sense of not being able to keep up. Like when you discover a band or something like that and you just realise that they've already had 15 albums and there's no way you can digest and really explore those albums and also feel like you're following the artists as they grow through that period you can take the back catalogue and you can study it and you can also see it within hindsight and what were the fashions and the fads at the time what influence you know there's a different aspect of the study there it's a retrospective study but it doesn't feel now it doesn't feel alive it feels like a dissection it feels colder somewhat Here's the issue. There is no frontier I feel part of. If you have a look at 18xx and cube rails, it's all retrospective. And of course there's still design happening. And if you look at the weather forecast, you can see there's hundreds and hundreds of ideas. But it feels like people playing around the edges of something that's largely happened already. And cube rails, much the same really. It feels like the golden age is gone. I've got the answer, mate. Oh, okay. Just stop now. Okay. We're going to start a podcast on trick takers. Let's just stop the train rush. <laughs> because we have been talking about card games for the last few podcasts, I think. It would make a natural transition. Definitely. It wouldn't be forced at all. Doesn't that help you understand why people who are engaging with the contemporary part of the hobby get as excited as they do? Maybe excited beyond your ability to relate to it? There's something in that engaging with the thing that's being made right now, something that offers on a primal level, that doing archaeology can't quite scratch that same mental itch. I feel like not only am I missing out, there's not a fear, there's not that anxiety. It's more like 
a sense of regret, a kind of regret in having missed out? My understanding is that a lot of therapy is about dealing with an unfair hand or working out how to take your current hand forward rather than ruin the hand that was never dealt. What's the actionable you can do off this? You weren't there. I wasn't there. We never will have been there. And the current market doesn't make games that are to our taste in the volumes necessary for you to get what you want out of it in terms of a production. If we just said, it's the Craig and Joe podcast and we only cover games that leave you with cuts on your fingers and we only play those, we'll be playing about three games a year. (laughs) We should probably match our current podcast release rate, but that's by the by. So that's not a solution. Contemporary board game design tastes are softer on the whole. That's my perception of current board games. So the question I'm pitching to you is, what's the actionable? Given the constraints that you've assigned yourself, you want to play games you're interested in, the games you're interested in aren't made anymore, but you don't feel like you're part of a current community. Mm. Which of those do you fix? Do you change the way you look at looking at old games? So it's happened, so what? It's still new to someone. See what I mean? You can't dig up the dead cat. You can put the dead cat in your living room all you like. It isn't actually going to make you happier. What a horrible metaphor. I've got a reasonably ill cat that has been the um, time sink of my life for the past four months or so. Hence it coming up. Sorry, I apologise. Hence no podcast. Yeah. If for like, months. The cat ate my podcast doesn't have the same ring to it as the dog ate my homework. This is a question about Q-Browse. Did we actually miss out on an experience that felt like a cultural movement at the time? There was a sense, obviously, of exclusivity, of being on the winsome list, only limited number of games. And we've got this, looking back, looking at this movement, and it is a design movement, a few authors of these games coming up with a new genre of game. They're right in the mosh pit of, like, punk rock or kraut rock or whatever. But I just wonder, at the time joining the winsome list and buying into that movement did anyone there feel more positive feedback from being in the group and on that list than the games which were actually created did we actually miss out on anything we still be part of that cultural conversation because we're having it now with fellow collectors about the experiences we're having and what how we appraise these games the only thing we're missing is that being is the right word contemporaneous i want to say it's contemporaneous but it's probably just contemporary that's the only bit we're missing on and i guess the contemporary aspect of it means there's more people talking about the exact same thing at the same time this sounds like the ugly sister of hype to me doesn't it it's almost meta part of the excitement of hype is being caught up in it we're all talking about this thing and we're all throwing in observations on the same artifact that feels good i get as much out of talking to fellow collectors about these things than i do anything else i'm a collector now don't you know i have more than one a lot of the people buying these games in their clamshells, they didn't necessarily play them. I mean, it sounds absolutely awful, but the opportunities to play Winsomes, they were probably weaker 15 years ago than they are now. Board gaming was even more niche. Fewer people participated in modern board games. And I suspect that this was a niche within a niche even back then. A lot of conjecture there, I'll fully admit. Is the creation of something more interesting before it becomes well established? Because I was reading about the origins of Games Workshop and White Dwarf, that 
publication being on the forefront of that innovation and talking about Dungeons and Dragons and the miniature games and the small indie experiments that was coming out of that cultural movement and it was simultaneously creating a cultural movement at the same time a source for all these people to gather around and read about the things they're interested in and then just think about Games Workshop now, like highly established, probably have reached the dreams of, of the creators, and I bet they never imagined it would get so big, but it seems so dull now. It doesn't feel like it's alive in the same way. And that's despite its fantastic fantasy setting. That's probably, it's a multi-dimensional analysis or multivariant analysis, but if I look at it objectively, largely, I would say that company is in a better shape it was making a better product than it was all those years ago the whole it was more exciting it was zanier and weirder years ago but the reality is that game wasn't playable <laughs> and taking that back to train games i don't think that metaphor doesn't work i don't think they're continuously improving that future of train games maybe i shouldn't be so negative there are still designs coming out i mean yeah but they're all shit uh, <laughs> J.C. Lawrence is still designing games. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. He says he's designing, although whether we're allowed to take it to a printer or not is a different question. Very good. Very well. What I'm trying to work out is maybe when you're in the present, it's hard to see the future. But what I mean is I feel like nothing's happening right now. I don't feel as if anything's going to change the world in terms of train games. But then I think it's very hard to see things in the moment and what things become and where things end up so maybe we need to do a five-year retrospective and work out whether my predictions that this is a cultural wasteland or not is actually true i suspect the podcast is probably circa five years old and actually think about the things that were coming out back then you know you had 18 lilliput i was proven right wasn't i internet i was proven right any of you guys still talking about it right now didn't think so what else was there there was that uh, north american railways just dust now just dust now it's blown away yeah. I think 1822 Canada came out that year we were at peak 1822 hype for sure I mean the only way to grade it is to try and look at the releases of those years and go okay how many of those were engaging and how many of those were reprints I do think there's some value in the idea believe it or not just a highlights episode but this podcast so fucking miserable it'd be a lowlights episode <laughs> and here's the bit where we were slightly not depressing and here's the game that we said we liked but you can infer what we really thought here's the one where Craig was made to play worker placement game have you actually listened to that episode? That's one of the few episodes I haven't listened back to in recent yonks. No, I suspect it was proper ISIS video. <laughs> Gun to the head job. Actually, it has a tone to it, which is a lot like a Kickstarter preview. Really? And you pretend to be really excited about it because you're being paid to pretend to be excited about it. Um... <laughs> We talked before about that sense of mortality, wanting to be something more than just a collection of bones, having some kind of lasting mark. And that we talked about that in terms of being a designer and preserving your thoughts and that kind of thing. Do you think there's something egotistical in my feelings here of wanting to be part of something greater or, you know, be on that frontier? No more than blah billion other people on the planet, Joe. Human existence in part is trying to seek meaning. People find meaning in all sorts of different places. People find meaning in their family. People find meaning in, in their careers. People find meaning in their religion. Their particular point of focus will be unique to each individual. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if it's the bloody archdiocese of the Church of England. In a thousand years' time, that'll have as little meaning as our podcast. 
It'll be a footnote in a book, maybe. There'll be statues of us, Greg. Oh, yeah, exactly. While everything else has crumbled away to ruin. You and I will be on a box cover, just like Chris Spaff of Chris Spaff Industries. Yeah. Oh, man. I hate that guy. Jealousy's on a box cover. It's unbelievable. If only you had playtest credit, you could keep yourself warm with those. Yeah. Oh, the back call to my playtest credit. That is funny that you're credited with playtesting that game. And it is a game for our audience as well. If you want to find Craig's name in the rulebook as playtester, you'll have to go and rush out and buy quickly before they run out all of the 18xx titles and find where Craig Taylor's name is written as a playtester, having played it once. If you do that, and I see receipts of you having bought all the 18xx games, and you send me a picture of my name, mm-hmm. I'll print you a t-shirt and I'll send you it. <laughs> I love our competitions. Oh, this is making me feel happy again, that kind of excitement. <laughs> Part of this competition, I just want to get the finer details ironed out. If they already own all the games, do they still have to go out <laughs> and buy every single one? Yes, yes, absolutely. Do they have to do it with a large grin and wide eyes, like they're staring into the light at the end of the tunnel? But they have to record into a microphone at 5,000 decibels. I am so hyped! I am so hyped! <laughs> every 10 minutes until they've acquired all the games. I'll expect an audio log of that as well. And when they ask for the t-shirt, when we haven't sent them the t-shirt, the podcast will be finished. We've shut down all our accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks like there's a storm on the horizon. Mr. Craig, what is it? It's just, just a thought. I don't think I'm going to be returning from these mountains. Of course you are. That's just morbid thinking, that is. This is a personal reflection thing, and I know that it's about the use of language, but honestly, I've got a real issue with the phrase content creator. It's a horrible term, isn't it? Because I think it's actually really demeaning, because I think it paints the picture that there's some kind of vast vacuum that they must desperately fill. With anything. With absolutely anything. See the horizon, just get the concrete. You're going to pour concrete over everything just so that there's something on it. So that is the picture I imagine, and I know other people don't have those negative connotations. I understand the whole argument about language changing, etc. But then language changing is a conversation, right? People looking to anchor language as it was are part of that conversation as much as people trying to say that schmozzle bottom now means that it's when you stick a chocolate up your bum because Schmozzle's a famous Canadian chocolate, I've been informed, and that's obvious, yeah? So, no? Okay. No, it doesn't mean that. We've decided it doesn't mean that. So there you go. It doesn't mean that. But I think it's quite interesting in the world of board games because, fundamentally, isn't playing the board game, isn't that the content? Because that's different from having a network or a TV streaming channel and actually filling it with stuff that people can watch. We've already got the stuff. The game is the stuff. It seems to me that it's almost like the media is so removed that the content is now actually just watching someone else play the game or hear about how much they enjoyed playing the game. It just gives a sense that if you're feeling completely empty inside, you can cheer yourself up by imagining you are there with them. Heavy Cardboard call it the peanut gallery, which is basically just the cheap seats in a theatre. Is that what they say? I thought it's the penis gallery. 
<laughs> Thanks for disabusing me of that notion. If you ever go and watch back any of their YouTube videos, guess who's always in the peanut galleries? Chris Spaff. For, I know for a fact he's under the same notion I am. He's probably got his trousers around his ankles at that point. <laughs> And his spreadsheet out. What do you mean this is inappropriate? It's on the tin! Penis gallery! <laughs> I've paid for this seat! <laughs> Chapter 6 Judgment The farther smoke travels, the cooler it tastes. The farther smoke travels, the smoother it tastes. And today, only Chesterfield... The sky had transformed. Monstrous clouds rolled over the landscape below, dark but broken with sheet lightning flashes, ready to erupt. A gale had grown with their ascent, pushing the band against the face of the cliff, an uncomfortable hike over the talus either side of the tracks. From the mountainside, they could see the glow of an emerald city in the distance, the buildings green and luminous against the darkening sky. The city lay on an island of countryside meadows, slowly being swallowed by the concrete poured across the land around it. There it is, the home of your beloved Crispath Industries. Red lights fired at the top of great towers, pouring thick smoke into the heavens above. It was fashioned by builders of old, and yet it seemed a thing not made by the craft of men, but riven from the bones of the earth in the ancient torment of the hills. Is this the reason you brought me here? see this. Your infatuation has become but an obsession, Joe. Through the smoke buzzed a swarm of a thousand drones with their amplified speakers, out and away from the factory with its fortress walls, across the landscape in every direction. Clockwork magpies squawking their love for saturated colours, storybook pictures of heroes and villains, and coffins wrapped in plastic. The drone helicopter blades all beat in unison, stirring up an inescapable hurricane, and the acid rain began to fall. Quick! They're coming our way! desperate for their undivided attention. They searched along the wall of the mountainside and found a space for themselves, sheltered in the entrance of a cave which burrowed into the heart of the mountain. There's no room in here, guys! You'll have to wait outside! The band played, not discouraged by the hail which fell like stones. Their fingers blew as they pressed down on the valves of the brass. The hurricane advanced towards them. Let's go. 
And even these two businessmen are showing signs of happiness. In fact, there's good food for everybody at the Happy Eater. And as for value for money, what better proof of happiness could you ask for? The Happy Eater. Look out for the signs. <coughs> Try and move those stones! Norm! Norm! You fucking useless bastard! Norm! Give me your 1825 rule book. No! Give it here! No! Give it! Give it! No! Joe, give it no, back! No! Give it! Give it! No! Whoa! No! No! This game was handmade! Look! It's a tunnel! Oh god. What was that? That monster from the gauge games. How did it get in here? <laughs> what have you done to my. Fuck that! What have you done to my game? Some underground stream? Oh, I don't know. We're never getting out of here. Let's go. With a torture light, fed by pages of rules and railway charters and company shares, Joe led Craig through the gloom of the labyrinth. The cavern tunnels were dynamite blasted with traces of rusted rails, tracks long disjointed, a broken circuit. I don't fucking believe it. I'm sorry, Joe. I'm, I, 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 I would have... I burnt the 1880 rule book if I carried it around with me wherever I went. And I fucked up. They had burned through Unit 1 of Craig's 1825 collection and had set alight the board for Unit 2 when they discovered a rotted turntable for the abandoned mine. Many passages led away in every direction. Oh god. What is this place? Which way do we go? There must be hundreds of ways. Jesus, it's the catacombs of 1,000 islands railway. They took a path at random, for the air in each smelled foul. So you've got orange fat controllers or ticket inspectors, or what are they called? Railway inspectors, track inspectors. Mm -hmm. They travel down the lines, and the orange ones will only stay on the orange line, and the blue ones will only stay on the blue line. And they can't cross over. When those inspectors pass a built piece of track, they'll pay to use it because they're charitable chaps like that and their season ticket's as good as anybody else's. I mean, this is probably where the entire operational aspect of this game lives because these inspectors can't go past each other because they're... I don't bloody know. They just hate each other. They cannot stand to walk past each other. They're like solitary hunters like tigers. The whole game seems to be about leaving these inspectors in places where the next move is going to move them past your stations more than other people's or move them in such a way that you don't pay anybody else. This is just a superficial thing, but the entire thematic basis of this game is complete nonsense, I think. Why are the players buying up these concessions to build individual pieces of track in such a sporadic way without any any kind of coordination whatsoever and why are these inspectors travelling along that fixed line? Oh the whole thing's just an abstract and the second we started playing it was just a set of rules. It had no grounding in anything sensible as far as I could see. Broadly speaking that is probably one of the few games that you and I are in a degree of alignment in terms of this is not worth any more effort in playing and I don't even want to actively think about it except like the scab on a wound we want to talk about why we think it's bad. Do we or am I, am no, I, no, I forcing not, you? No, you're not forcing me because I realised I'm more like you than I realised when we came away from this because I was trying to wrap verbiage around why I thought the experience was so poor and I was quite pleased with some of the phrasing I was using to describe my disdain for it. Not just because it was colourful language, I like a colourful metaphor, I like exaggeration, but because I felt it actually clearly articulated where my annoyance lay. Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being one of those useless sets of words. Oh, it's nice. Oh, it's nasty. 
oh, it's not for me. They then realised that, hold up a second, I'm chastising you for carrying on to poke the corpse with a stick. Leave it alone, you know it's dead. No, maybe I can breathe life into it if I just do this. I'm doing the same in a weird way. I'm like, okay, this is, what's wrong with it? Am I wrong to think that? Am I not seeing the problem correctly? Or But I hated this game twice. Why am I even thinking about it at all? This is interesting, though, because this is a game, you said earlier, that a podcast probably is only worth us recording what we have to say about it if it's something which is really excellent excellent or the reverse of that pick something apart because it's truly terrible and explain exactly why the game doesn't function for us whereas this is a game that is truly terrible it's worth covering it to some extent because it is a game that hardly anyone has spoken about and there's so little information about it anywhere but there is no way that we could do a full episode on it. I'm not willing to do to myself what's necessary <laughs> to make a full podcast on it. But do we want to do an experiential podcast on what people's lives are like after they lose a limb to a landmine? <laughs> okay, Joe, who's chopping their leg off first? You or me? You know what? Let's not do that podcast. Early on, you had next to no control because the cards come out of the deck in a random order and the value of a card you build is dictated by the subsequent cards that come out and you can only see so many of them. So it's essentially blind and you're moving the station master, fellas, whatever they're called, inspectors around the track with no idea as the potential for their next movement and also no idea for where anybody else is going to build because the concessions are going to come out randomly for the next player. Who knows what they're going to take? Okay, and more to the point, who knows what's going to be offered to them? Maybe there's something there for leaving something in the conveyor belt that's tasty for another player to try and shape an alliance. Oh, I'll build one of these and if Joe, if you build the other, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't just take both of them and have more line but let's not go into that late game it just becomes procedural and calculable and there doesn't seem to be a middle point at all between this early random who knows what's going to happen crazy hijinks of boringness and the late we know what's going to happen crazy hijinks of boringness there's no middle section with ambiguity at all there's no oh maybe if i do this maybe they'll do that the middle section if it's there it's two moves is there some structural strategy on the board for building. If you have a large length of connected track, then maybe the other players are going to do their best to avoid running over that track. But you can mitigate that by just moving the inspectors in such a way that they can't avoid moving it over. That. Yes. We were also discussing whether it'd be better to build in like a hopscotch manner. So no matter where the inspectors go, they're going to be crossing some of your owned cubes. But then it's a trade-off because you've got less access to exclusive routes you can run to benefit yourself above others. When you come down to it anyway, can keep some cards in your hand, up to three at the end of your go. You could try and work towards some kind of a plan, but like you said, the majority of the game is dictated by the flow of that deck. I felt that there was an interesting aspect where you can choose to take on debt for money. Yeah, at any point on your turn you can trade victory points for cash. Mm. So you can go into negative victory points so that you may build some of the track. And the ratchet on points versus money is awful. But actually taking those, for want of a better term, loans early on means that you get more presence early on, which means the bits you build have way more opportunity to pay back. I then wonder if it devolves into a game of race to the bottom, take on as much debt as possible as quickly as possible. It probably doesn't. There's probably some nuance there, but the actual flow of the game and the experience is so awful, I don't care to play it enough to find out. 
I think the worst aspect of the game is the length of the turns. So, first of all, the card row is replenished, and you don't get to see the new cards until the beginning of your turn. So, you go through a process of looking at every card, trying to find out where on earth it is on the map, what are the benefits of you placing your cube there, what are the costs for you placing your cube there, can you afford that card in the position of the card row, can you afford it after you've bought it from the card row to build it that turn. There's all of that before you even do anything. Then you have to go through the procedure of building, and you have to choose which card you're going to build first. If You have to build one, but you may build up to three. You have to think through what is the optimal build order, and to do that you need to go through this process of thinking around what happens with every single build. And then the build procedure is fairly lengthy, so you're finding the position on the map, you're paying the amount of money you need, you're then moving the inspector, and then you're paying out, and then you're building again. But the most important part of this game is that puzzle, I think, and that could be entertaining for some players, possibly, is that logic puzzle of what is the most efficient, the best order to build these cards. And there will always be a correct answer, and it's just about going through the procedure, thinking about it, working out the logic puzzle of where you're going to move the inspectors, how much money is that going to make you, or actually if I build this first then I get to move this inspector here, which means then it will run over this piece of track which will earn me more money. It reminded me of the long turns on Duck dealer. On your turn you either have a short turn where you pick up an action token or you have a action turn where you cash in all of your tokens. You can't hold in any of them back and you take your turn sequencing out all your tokens to do stuff. And watching other people take their turns on Duck Dealer is possibly one of the most boring experiences known to man. Especially when your next forecast turn is I pick up a token. Mm -hmm. This is like watching the long turns on Duck Dealer every single goddamn time. <laughs> Yeah, of course, there comes to a point where you just think, just take your damn move. Yeah, but at that stage, then no one's actually playing the game. Yeah. Which then makes the whole thing an even bigger waste of time. If you don't allow people to actually try and take their moves properly, what's the point? Because it is quite a tactical game, because you've got no foresight, you cannot see into the future about what's going to happen, what's going to come out next, then you have to make the most efficient move on that go, in that turn, right now, what's going to make you the most money, what's going to make the least amount of money for other players. So there aren't multiple answers to this, this is what's the best right now. And so it feels disappointing if you can't be bothered to get to that point, because that is the puzzle, you're literally failing the puzzle there. Just remember the worst elements of Westwood Rails, the bit where we're struggling to find the routes, the cards coming out randomly. This is that, but the entire thing is just that. There is no ounce of fun in this game. Just none at all. It's just pain in a box. I don't know who I'd inflict this on. Very rarely <laughs> will I use the language of inflict when it comes to board gaming experiences, but this is one where man, if someone asked me to play it, I think I would have to say that my dog's burst a tyre and I need to take him to the body shop. Any excuse will do. Let's go speak to a man about a dog, about a tyre, about uh, uh, having my hair cut. Bye! If this game has anything interested in it to explore, they're buried under a morass of such poor timing in terms of how long turns take, 
in terms of uh, how long a meaningful decision space exists in the arc of the game. Would it be much better if there was some kind of random setup you do, a bit like Last Train to Wensleydale, where you're just dropping random cubes all over the board and then maybe scooping them back up again, to at least get halfway through the game? The positions have ostensibly different values, don't they? That's graded into the cost of the build for the cards and how many points you get for building them. Maybe there's a case of give people a starting pool of cash and victory points. The builds are automatic. Give them four cards each. They're all auto-built and you just resolve them. You're all going to start with varying levels of debt, but now make some decisions. If you're devolving the entire opening 30 minutes of the game or whatever, it is the splotter-esque school of game design here. If you can't lose in the first turn, what's the point in having the first turn? Or if you make no decisions in the first 30 minutes of the game, why not just do it as setup? <laughs> But when we played it, I was so disengaged that Dale was pretty much running my turns. Would it work as some sort of solitaire game? Because that is what it is. Everything has a right answer and it's puzzly and there's no ambiguity around other players' motivations. Or more to the point, if there is ambiguity there, you can't do anything with it. This could be put in the paper every day, random maps of it. You are the blue player. Here are the cards that have come up. You have 12 money and 10 points. What should you do? The thing is, we are developing the game. This game exists as is. These ideas are never going to be formed into a better version. One and a half thousand island railways. The only good thing I could think of that came out of this game being designed and released was its possible influence on Rails USA, which came out two years later, that idea of running passages down rails to earn different players' money. I agree. There's a core loop, a core scoring loop specifically, not a core action loop, that is worthy and is interesting and is what makes your mind work. But the rational thing is to do the old birthing hormone thing when a woman gives birth and <laughs> the hormones pump out to make them forget what happened so they might have another <laughs> child in their lifetime. Bring on the lobotomy. What phrasing were you particularly pleased with then when you were writing about your disdain for this game? Thousand Island Railways is a living death, knowing there must be better but being forced to endure, at best seeing glimpses of promises, only to realise they were baleful reflections in the long dead eyes of your fellow traveller. Engagement departed and in a better place. Well, anyway... They crawled in single file, with no light to guide their way their hands flailing ahead, searching for the next passage forward. Knocked heads on low rocks, icy water drips, cold puddles to pull themselves through, clothes sodden and heavy. When the tunnel grew wider and they were able to stoop again, Joe lit another match against the Heartland Trefoil cardboard box signed by Francis Tresham. My precious! What they saw in the caves struck them still as stone, unblinking, gasping, enormous human remains, its finger bones gripped around a crushed locomotive engine, the tomb of a giant, a great crack in its skull. Ceremoniously buried alongside the giant was a cage, inside it the skeleton of a curled up carnivorous mammal. What is this? I don't know. Who is this? I don't know. No one remembers. Is that a dead fox. What does it mean? That we're all losing our minds. 
maybe it's all open to interpretation. Let's go. This is a bit of a revelation, something which I realise is actually maybe a bit of a problem. Whenever I hear about something interesting, I will mark it on a wish list on Board Game Geek, and then I've got a list of games, games which I feel like I need to obtain at some point, which feels like it's hanging over me, which is completely insane. Yeah, yeah. Like an albatross hanging round my neck. And the easiest way to remove them from the wish list for me, because I am completely insane, is to actually buy those games and then I feel relief. A checklist of things I need to do, get off my plate. It's nuts. Board gaming isn't alone in having stuff like this. Frameworks to enable you to collect and to encourage you to collect. Here's the thing that I think is present in board gaming that encourages these negative behaviours. That is also present in other hobbies I can observe. It's the normalisation of collections at scale. And it's not, here are my board games, there's my board game shelf, there's the 20 board games. And that would be a massive collection for like a normal person, right? It's the, there's my 200 games. It's the normalisation of thousands of pounds worth of investment as the modal average of a collection, even though it isn't in the real world, even though if you were to poll people that aren't in there, by being on BGG, by posting your collection, by being on a Facebook group and taking the time to post your collection, you're already self-selecting to be in that upper echelon, that slightly obsessed amongst the obsessed people group that have a collection that's bigger than you'll likely play in a reasonable amount of time. People laughing about it, joking about it. Suddenly your purchase of 40 games in the last year seems perfectly rational. Even though it isn't if you haven't played them all in the last year. So I've got my winsome clamshell games. Then I've got, on top of that, their mass-produced edition. Why have I got two copies of this game? And then am I going to jump on board for the next release at Rio Grande when I've already got it? I can't criticise. I've got backup copies of 18xx's that I really like upstairs. Backup copies. <laughs> That's how strong the FOMO was at one point. Because, like, in my house, it's not completely impossible for people to pour drink on my games or stick their wristwatches on the charters and scar them up. And although it doesn't make the game any less playable, I find it annoying that my collection has a copy that's scarred and battle-worn. Actually, if a game gets worn out playing it 20 times, you don't care because it gave you 20 times worth of play and those wear marks are representative of the fun time you had over a protracted period. But when you've got one that's just bollocks because somebody lent on it funny with their full S&M costume. All you can remember is that event <laughs> and the strange cat mask they were wearing. You don't have any joyous memories of that. Hmm. He's talking about you, Sven. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. One experience I had recently, which was a really positive experience, was ordering a game amongst a chatter of hype, but because it was a handmade game, very small numbers produced at a time and then it must have been a good two months between putting the order in and getting the invoice by that point because i had that space that rational space and a cool down period of those two months to actually think do i really want this game is this game going to fulfill a very unique part in the collection of other unplayed games I have. And it actually just made me feel really good about answering the invoice and saying, I've changed my mind, I don't want to buy this anymore. So you cancelled it, Joe? I did cancel it. You turncoat? It was going to remain completely anonymous, and it will remain completely anonymous. No one will know what hyped-up game it was. Do you think we are addicted to board games? No, I think I'm addicted to con 
consumption and board games happens to be the avenue that I'm going down or have been going down most consistently for the past 10 years. I think if I was to step away from board games entirely and sell my entire collection, I would probably throw myself headlong into another hobby and end up surrounded by a different collection of crap. If I was being honest with myself, I'm addicted to consumption and consumerism, which is a much harder thing to kick for what it's worth. Our entire society is built around it. I just think that board games are potentially more encouraging of that addiction. A chronic dysfunction of the brain system that involves reward, motivation and memory. And it's about the way your body craves a substance or behaviour which causes a compulsive or obsessive pursuit of reward. And I'm wondering actually if the games themselves, which trigger a variety of emotions and they work with that idea of reward very heavily, whether actually the stimulation it provides is actually not unlike an addictive substance. First of all, you get the hit from the media. Buy beds now! And then you shop. Getting a deal as well. Oh, you get the hit from getting a deal. I save five pounds, Joe. There's that sense of expectation, anticipation for unwrapping the box, the preparation for that hit. You spend all that time poring over the rule book. You're thinking about what kind of experience you're going to have. And then if you actually get to the point of actually playing the game after all of that. Oh, silly rabbit. Games aren't for playing. The social aspect, the social hit, playing the game. And beyond that, a positive feedback from learning the game while you're playing it. That sense of control, freedom and achievement of getting those victory points or earning that money, instant and tactile feedback. And so there's that multi-layers to why maybe they're so alluring from the very beginning research stage all the way through to eventually playing it and craving more. Those bright colours, those geometric shapes, those revenue locations with numbers, addictive, arithmetic, the buying of shares, the holding of responsibility. Oh man, I just tell you what, every time I have on those charters, <laughs> I have to hold myself, I have to like not tear my shirt off and stand there like Bruce Willis in Die Hard, I tell you, it's just... <laughs> Is addiction just an overused term like OCD? Like, as somebody who is, you hear it a lot, like those people who claim that, oh, I like having my tea towels rolled up by colour. It's cute. Sorry, I meant OCD. Sorry, I meant cute. I'm so OCD. Are we falling afoul of using that word too lightly? I don't want to use it lightly. So that is why I'm throwing it up as a theory and connecting it to the reward, motivation, and wondering about it. I don't think the negative consequences with board gaming are associated with the act of board gaming. The problem is, I think that one feeds the other. The more you play, the more you end up buying. And mm -hmm. I think the purchasing of board games can become a displacement behaviour for not being able to play them as well. Yes, yeah, definitely. The other thing about purchases that I think this links into even more toxically. Purchases can become commitments to future purchases. And I've realised that's how I feel about my Vitao Lacerda games or my collection of Root stuff. I barely play Root. 
I've enjoyed it a few times, but every time there's a Kickstarter for more Root stuff, gotta keep my Root complete. Oh, oh yeah, this expansion, it, it lets you play two games of Root on top of each other using a three-dimensional board system, and it comes with furry hats for your kids, and you get to pretend to be the actual animals. Oh, wow, best buy that one. How much is it? £702? Oh, that sounds like a lot, but I've got the rest of it. Oh, two weeks later. Oh, Eagle Griffin Games have released Vital Lacerda's next game, where there's five decisions hidden behind a veil of 5,000 pages of procedure. <laughs> but the art's buying a tool, and I've got the rest of them. Best go and buy that. And the box will line up with the other boxes. They're so shiny in the shrink. So shiny. And they're <laughs> never going to come out of the shrink, because I would never champion getting it to the table. And yet, even though I've stopped buying them, there's still some degree of ennui there. Oh, maybe I should buy Weather Machine to complete my set. It's bonkers, Joe. It's completely irrational. Mm. I don't even like the style of game anymore. So the answer, obviously, here is one, stop making the stupid purchasing decision. And two, if the thing lives in your house and brings you no joy with it living in your house, sell the bloody thing. Board gaming is this nice, shiny bauble that gives you, like you said, dopamine hits, it gives you serotonin hits, it makes you feel good, generally. And then that can be a trigger for a consumerism addiction. Mm -hmm. If you are a collection holder as opposed to someone who either through means or through mentality are able to derive the pleasure from just attending sessions and playing other people's stuff. And there's lots of people who do that. And I think it's way healthier, actually. Certainly fiscally healthier to look at these things as you can go to the zoo and see a tiger. You don't need to own a tiger. Owning a tiger is far more expensive and far less rewarding than just, maybe not rewarding, but it's far more work for the payoff than just paying for a ticket to the zoo. Especially if all your friends own a tiger. We're in a situation where everyone's got a clone of the same tiger. If you're addicted to a substance, there are physical consequences to that substance. Because there are minimal physical consequences, there's a lack of concern around that potential addiction. Right. It's an accepted addiction. We laugh it off. The only physical consequence I could think of from the actual player board games was those kind of wide eyes and empty smiles. It does slowly transform your body into a walking YouTube thumbnail. I think the specific thing about it that makes it so noxious with board gaming, okay, is that it's marketed to us as wholesome. You're spending time with your friends. It's social. It's good, clean fun. But it's marketed to you and it's marketed heavily in all sorts of ways that are surreptitious that you don't even realise are marketing. The people doing it don't even realise they're effectively marketing. You see these media creators doing a nice thing, okay? They're sharing their joy. They're trying to spread a passion. And you think individually they're not doing any harm. More the point, they're not going out with the intent of doing harm. But actually, this advertorial stuff, I do wonder if you're delivering it in this kind of false... And I'm going to say false. If false as an exaggerated or hyper-real version of the world. Performed. Performed, exactly. This performative way. If you are encouraging unhealthy buying decisions, overconsumption, where the publisher is the only real winner, is there a moral duty to actually think about what you're enabling? Is there, when you take the behaviour of a group of actors as a trend, you know, when you generalise, is content creation a positive thing? Whether they mean to or not, they are directly accessing primitive impulses. When you open up Board Game Geek and you see Eric Martin's gurning face, that there should be a warning next to him, white with black text, warning you about the dangers of overconsumption, him pointing at his smile. 
I like your comparison to the Happy Eater. I like that comparison because, A, it was quintessentially British. But also, unless you're like in your early 40s, it won't mean anything to you over here, to be quite honest. But it's the call to action. Happy Eater tells you to consume and it will make you happy. Your belly will be full and you will be satiated, ready for the next leg of your journey like a human fucking locust. I think there's also an argument I quite often see is that these aren't big companies. They're tiny little companies which have barely any members of staff working for them. Got to keep these people alive. We need to keep the hobby going. We need to sustain their capitalistic ventures. We, we need to fund their creativity. We need to keep these designers designing. We need these publishers to survive. And due to the fact that actually it is a very small industry, you have got characters, I say characters, real people, on the social scene that you can get to know through social media. And this can have a really positive effect, building communities around people that you admire, that you're a fan of. But when you've got others saying, you've got to buy this, we know this person, we know this designer, we know this publisher, because you can name them. It's not Pepsi-Cola. This is Chris Spath of Chris Spath Industries. He's always on the Facebook or Instagram or the box cover of Kanban. This is Martin Wallace here. We know Martin Wallace. (laughs) <laughs> We've spoken to him at the convention. We've got to buy his game because he's in financial trouble. Is he taking out too many loans in Age of Steam? Is that? Yeah. yeah. We can't. We, we shouldn't talk about Age of Steam. He's. Sorry. Yeah. Sore point. Yeah. Those loans. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sense of duty of keeping something alive, keeping actual people alive, keeping them in a job. This is a giant Ponzi scheme. <laughs> If it relies on people consuming in an unhealthy fashion for a promise of nothing, you need to keep giving me the money so I can keep this thing going, okay? (laughs) What am I getting out of it? No one's got a gun in my head making me buy it. That's the thing. But... (sighs) But there is a sense of duty or a community. I don't know, I think it's a negative result of people's loyalty which is really it's awful isn't it you've got to keep up with the chris spaths and keep the chris spaths alive it's a manipulation certainly it's a moral imperative to keep an over bloated publishing industry alive that pumps out thousands of games a year and they can't all be worthy they just can't no and the only way it works is if enough people over consume oh i'm just making videos encouraging people to consume I'm just letting people know that cigarettes exist. I'm just letting people know about that excellent deal they can get on betting on Manchester United to score the 19th goal in the FIFA Coca-Cola Mega Champ. You actively look the other way about the potential consequences of what you're engaging with. The whole I didn't even think of it that way argument, yes, it makes it more forgivable, but I'm not going to give you license for me to think it's a good thing you're doing suddenly. Oh, you didn't think about it. That's okay then. You didn't think about the consequences of what you were doing. (laughs) That's fine. That makes it a good thing. Being a fucking idiot doesn't transform bad action into good soul-enriching intent, does it? Plato says opinion is the medium between ignorance and knowledge. I think there's some psychological thing parents teachers you grow up in a world where there's always the voice of the authority and you become trained to listen to that voice of authority and they know more than you do and you better do what they say and you've got creators posing as 
authority on fun. <laughs> An authority on fun. Excellent. I like that. You know, my talk about courtiers and clowns. It's all just a way of trying to understand and make sense of the different communities and how they act and why. But at the same time, there's this conflicting idea that the board gaming community is and should be defined as one single community. The hobby, the industry, the one true path to salvation. There's this underlying desire for as many people as possible to be sucked into this ever-growing sect of consumers. And even those who fashion themselves as critics, who are considered to be thoughtful and analytical, even they just enthuse about the next new thing, the long list of new games they've had the privilege to experience, blindly whipping up their own cycle of hype. Magpies, drawn to the media to display themselves, unfurl their feathers. Those courtiers, trusted advisers in the royal inner circle of gamers, those are the worm tongues, the happy eaters. Joe! Look! Joe, look! Look! White light streamed through a hole in the cave roof, casting a halo down, revealing a golden light in the dark river spring. Cold. We're rich! Wait a minute. This isn't gold. This is a wishing well. I'm better than nothing, though. Fill your pockets! Wait, stop! Why? Because these are somebody else's wishes. They're somebody else's dreams. Yeah, but you know what? This one, this one right here, this is my dream, my wish, and it didn't come true. So I'm taking it back. I'm taking them all back. What wish? For the star to fall and vaporize us all? Hey, you guys! Norm! It's Norm! What are you doing down at the bottom of a well? Don't ask stupid questions, we're stuck. Just send down the bucket. Come on. No. What do you mean, no? You want to throw your hobby time down a well? Isn't this what you wanted? Don't you realise? The next time we see another Cube Rail game, it'll be by some great pretender. The next time we play 18xx, it'll be some facsimile of everything we've seen before. It's their time. Their time up there. Down here, it's our time. It's our time down here. That's all over the second we ride up in Norm's bucket. The fortune teller, Craig. It said I needed to become a barbarian and punch down the forces of evil. You don't believe in horoscopes, Joe. And you certainly don't believe in a future for train gaming. But that's why you said we should go to Blackwater Station. Blackwater will provide all the answers. Save us from a bleak and dystopian future. I don't really believe that, Joe. I never did. It's all make-believe. Besides, look around. We're already living in that bleak world. All I wanted to do was to make you happy. To try to push against the darkness. To see if we could make a difference. But no one makes a difference, Joe. No one makes a difference. God, it's coming. Oh, fuck. Up the bucket. Come on. Hang on. Norm, pull us the fuck out of here. And it was coming. The Metrigon. Several gauges combined in a disjointed and unholy union. Switches into sidings, tracks into fangs, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings tucked behind tentacles. It squirmed through the tunnel, its arms extended, hungry. Winched up by Norm into the light at the end of the tunnel, Craig and Joe tumbled out of the stone wishing well into the daylight, scrabbling to their feet. How did you survive the avalanche? There's no time for questions. Pass me shotgun. Here, take it. Norm, there's only one shell left. 
That's all I need. They found themselves in the center of a market square in a mountain town with crowds filling the streets. Their bodies were bowed in prayer, a choir singing in praise of the revelations. Fred, Ian and Jake played their trumpet and trombone and bass drum, musicians going down the ship. Beneath them, the Metrigon bellowed. It punched up through the earth, shattering the wishing well, stone shrapnel exploding around them. The Leviathan had grown, towering above them. Oh God! Oh God! I'm this! ran at full pelt out of the village they took a moment to turn to face their inevitable fate what the hell is that what do you think it is it's a giant mecca oh my god it's it's the star it's our savior who the hell is that in the cockpit all our dreams come true this is as always your good friend space biff It's this way, it's through the forest of bear traps. Come on then, let's go. God damn right, it's a beautiful day. Trapped between a weeping behemoth from the depths and the fires from the almighty abode, can Craig and Joe escape? Is this the ghastly end of the dynamic duo? Answers next week. Same train time, same train tunnel. One hint, the worst has yet to come.
Hartford Island Railways is the attending of the wake of a stranger's young sibling, grief opted into for its own sake, and ultimately an awkward and thankless endeavour. Hartford Island Railways is the bolting down of the leftover dinner you didn't enjoy the first time round, looking into your spouse's eyes, knowing that she didn't actually care whether you finished the leftovers or not. Thousand Island Railways is a circular argument with your spouse about who or who did not clean the dishes. Boring to the participants, the observers, and the narrator, and yet never ending. Thousand Island Railways is a loveless tryst between two mutually unattractive partners, devoid of rhythm, intention or joy, and ultimately lacking a satisfying climax. Thousand Island Railways is a discord full of people you barely like, yet you feel obliged to reply to each and every one of their messages. Thousand Railways is the realisation of your own mortality. Every second spent, promise lost, and mundanity secured. <laughs>